Good evening, world. <clears throat> this is the podcast, Assassin's and your host, S. Lord Cattell. Welcome back. We are going over the Miracle Club, Mitch Horowitz. And just a quick recap, we've been going over, um, more specifically in this chapter, Neville Goddard. Let me go find that again. And the last couple of podcasts, we went over specifically his super simple formula towards manifesting, for lack of a better term, um, what you want into your life. <clears throat> formula is real simple. First, clarify a sincere and deeply felt desire. What do you want? Step two, enter a state of relaxed immobility bordering on sleep. Uh, we've gone over theta state, hypnagogic state, the time just before you're falling asleep, the time just after you're waking up, and or self-induced hypnosis or other, um, <clears throat> other ways of getting into trance. Okay? Right there is when you're the most suggestive. So he says state of, of uh, relaxed immobility because you quiet the body in order to activate other levels of the mind. And then the third, enact a mental scene that some contains the assumption and feeling of your wish fulfilled. Or as Mr. Dooley has put it, imagining from the end result. So a short, simple little video of your end result having come true. And his example was a woman had come up to him saying that she was lonely and his suggestion was to visualize a ring on her finger, right? Symbolizing somebody had put a ring on it. She was married. So keep it simple. Don't make it complex. Keep it simple. Okay. So figure out what you want. Get into the proper state of asking for what you want. And then repeat that small, simple scene until you feel that your whatever it is that you're asking for has been fulfilled. And that's it. Really simple. And Mr. Goddard himself was very famous to say, don't take my word for it. Take this home and go prove me wrong if I'm wrong. But prove me wrong. Don't just say I'm wrong, prove me wrong. So he was very keen to say, take these things and go do something with them. And we left off yesterday at Portrait of the Mystic. So I'm going to assume we're going to delve a little more deeply into Neville Goddard himself today, given that chapter 10 seems to be all about different aspects of Neville Goddard, his principles, philosophies, um, techniques, practices, that kind of thing. And that's what we're going to get into today. And before I get any farther, I shout out to the restaurant industry, all my guys and gals out there in Foodland. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for all good gracious you're still going through. Supply lines are getting ishy out there. And it's, it's not... They're not predicting it getting any better anytime soon. So, thank you for showing up. Thank you for being there. And if you are feeling too stressed and overwhelmed, 
And you can't take it anymore. Please, please, please do something. Else. Take a walk. Take a smoke. Take a shower. Take a bath. But don't do something you can't take back. Please don't do something you can't take back. Don't quit. Don't quit. Okay. Portrait of the Mystic. Since Neville exemplified his own philosophy, it is also important to understand something about him personally. Let's pick up where we began earlier, the island of Barbados, where Neville was born in 1905. He was not born into the wealthy landowning class. Rather, he was part of a large, somewhat scrappy family of British merchants. They ran a small grocery and provisions business. Transplanted from his tropical home to the streets of New York, Neville led a precarious financial life. The actor and dancer got by on jobs such as elevator operator and shipping clerk when theater work ran scarce. He did land some impressive roles, including on Broadway. But most of his stage work dried up with the onset of the Great Depression. Food was not a guarantee. He often wore the same suit of clothes and bounced around shared rooms, including on Manhattan's Upper West Side. In 1955, a gossip column reported that Neville came from an enormously wealthy family who owned a whole island in the Caribbean. This is invention, but over the course of time, the Goddard family did indeed become rich. This family of greengrocers grew into Goddard Enterprises, which is today a large catering and food service that employs about 6,500 people in the Caribbean and Latin America. They cater events and also prepare meals for airlines, oil rigs, factories, and other industrial facilities. Neville's father, Joseph, called Joe, founded the business and ran it with Neville's older brother, Victor, of whom Neville spoke frequently in his lectures. Everything Neville described about the rise of his family's fortune matches business records and reportage in Caribbean newspapers. But there is a more dramatic example of Neville's descriptions conforming to fact. In the years immediately before and after World War II, Neville lived in New York's Greenwich Village, a place that he relished. He resided with his wife and daughter at 32 Washington Square, a handsome red brick apartment building on the west side of Washington Square Park. His prospering, excuse me, his prospering family had since put the actor-turned-mystic on a stipend. Neville spent many happy years there. He was pulled away from home by the draft during World War II. He told a story in his lectures, however, of being quickly and honorably discharged from the army and returned back home thanks to the methods I've been describing. 
This story interested me, and I decided to track it as best I could. According to Army records, Neville was drafted on November 12, 1942, a little less than a year into America's entry into the war. This was the height of the war, when nearly every able-bodied male was being drafted. At age 37, Neville was a little old for the draft, but men were conscripted up to age 45. He wanted no part of the war and longed to return home to Greenwich Village. At that time, he was newly married with a four-month-old small daughter, and he also had an 18-year-old son from a previous marriage. He had obligations that most draftees did not. While stationed for basic training at Camp Polk in Louisiana, he asked his commanding officer for a discharge and was given an abrupt refusal. Neville decided to use his methods of mental creativity. Each night, as he described it, he would lie down on his army cot and before drifting to sleep would picture himself back in Greenwich Village. He would see from the perspective of being in his apartment with his wife and family and walking around Washington Square Park. He continued, night after night, in this imaginal activity. Finally, Neville said, seemingly out of nowhere, the commanding officer came to him and said, Do you still want to be discharged? Neville said, Yes, I do. And the CO said, You're being honorably discharged. When I first read this in his lectures, I was suspicious. Why would the United States Army discharge a perfectly healthy, athletic male? Neville was lithe and fit as a dancer. At the height of the war effort, it made no sense. <clears throat> so I found Neville's surviving military records. He was, as noted, inducted in November of 1942. I spoke to an Army Public Affairs official who also confirmed that Neville was, as he told it, honorably discharged within five months in March 1943, which was the date of his final army pay stub. The reason, as recorded by the military, is that Neville was discharged from service to accept employment in an essential wartime industry. I asked the public affairs officer, This man was a metaphysical lecturer. How is that a vital civilian occupation? He replied, Unfortunately, Mr. Goddard's records were destroyed in the 1973 fire at the National Personnel Records Center, about a year after Neville's death. Aww. The New Yorker of September 11, 1943, ran an extensive profile of Neville. This confirmed his being back on the lecture circuit at that time. He is depicted speaking all around town, in Midtown at the Actors' Chapel, downtown in Greenwich Village, in full swing of his employment in an essential wartime industry. I cannot say precisely what happened. I can only report that the logistics, as he described them, were accurate. I have found similar validation of several of his claims. He describes an unlikely story, says he used his method, and the unexpected occurs. 
I've reviewed his census records, citizenship application, military records, and other documents that track his whereabouts and employment, and can only say that his timelines and workday details match up. So I didn't want to really interrupt at all that little bit because that was quite the fascinating story that he was telling and I wanted it to go from start to finish in its totality. So what Mr. Horowitz is putting forth here is this is just one story of many of Neville's um, thought experiments when he would get mentally creative as he likes to put it. There is no legitimate reason why the U.S. Army at the height of the World War II needing every able-bodied man they could get a hold of would offer a healthy able-bodied man a full discharge honorably. That? Damn. That's just one. So he wanted to make sure that you understood just how outlandish it was and it's still... He still got out. He still got what he wanted. Unfortunately, we can't get the entire story because those records were destroyed in a fire. Hmm. Alright. We'll continue with metaphysical lineage. I want to consider where Neville's ideas came from. Or rather their point of embarkation. Because Neville was in no way a derivative thinker. I have come across phrasing in his early writing that suggests influences from French mind theorist Emile Coué and American physical researcher, excuse me, psychical researcher, Thomson J. Hudson, whose 1893 book The Law of Psychic Phenomena was influential in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Hudson attempted to demonstrate that mediumistic phenomena resulted from natural laws of clairvoyance rather than spirits or the supernatural. Hmm. So about the same time frame. And his theory is that all of the poltergeisty type things are from human beings using unbeknownst powers of their own minds rather than there being spirits that are doing it um, outside of their control. That's an interesting way of putting it. Okay. Continuing. Although Neville took his ideas in a bracingly original direction, the basics of his system were new thought, which rejects materialism as the foundation of life and sees reality based primarily in spiritual rather than physical laws. Modern positive mind philosophy is a distinctly American phenomenon and is very much a homegrown thought school, the roots of which are traceable to the transcendentalist culture of New England in the mid-19th century and the mental healing movement that grew in its wake. Those are the modern points of reference. But when tracking the history of ideas, one learns, or ought to, that virtually every thought and currency has been encountered and articulated in varying ways at diffuse points of history. 
Ideas about the causative nature of thought appear in the Greek-Egyptian philosophy called Hermeticism, which flourished in the city of Alexandria in the decades immediately following the death of Christ. Writers in the Hermetic tradition captured centuries of Egypt's oral history and symbolism, recording it in Greek. They believed they were transmitting the ideas of a mythical demigod who the Greeks called Hermes Trismegistus Trismegistus or Thrice Greatest Hermes I probably just butchered that, my apologies who was a Hellenized version of the Egyptian god of writing and intellect, Thoth One of the key ideas in Hermetic philosophy is that through proper preparation including diet, meditation, and prayer, the individual is permeated by divine forces and gains higher powers of the mind. This teaching re-emerged during the Renaissance when translators and religious scholars rediscovered the Hermetic writings. In the Renaissance mind, Hermes was a figure of great antiquity, of the same vintage as Moses. I would argue that Hermes is probably supposed um, older than Moses, but that's me. Continuing. Renaissance thinkers had hoped that in finding Hermetic literature, some of which had been stowed away in monasteries during the Dark Ages, they had unearthed works of the greatest antiquity, which described a primeval theology predating Judeo-Christian culture. The Hermetic literature was later correctly dated to late antiquity, following the death of Christ. When this timeline was readjusted, the ideas of Hermeticism began to fall out of vogue. Renaissance intellects had pinned great hopes on the antiquity of the Hermetic writings, and when those writings were redated, many of the same philosophers and scribes their hopes of antiquity dashed, drew the conclusion, tragically for the Western intellect, that the entire project of Hermetic literature was compromised. Hence, to this day, there are few good translations of the Hermetic literature. It has been neglected. But what Renaissance and later thinkers failed to grasp was that even though the Hermetic writings themselves were not very antique, they nonetheless captured a worldview that had existed in oral tradition for an extraordinarily long time. A primeval philosophy is, in fact, present, at least in part, in the Hermetic manuscripts, which postdate the ideas found in them. This is the ancient antecedent to Neville. That's a reach, dude. I can see where you're where you're getting the idea from, but wait. That's Hmm. I'll give you similarities, but that that's to call it the uh <clears throat> You know what? You do you. I guess the argument could be made. Nope, not gonna go there. Okay. 
So, where was I? Some hermetic ideas and concepts about the divinity of the mind re-entered Western culture through the influence of individual philosophers and artists, including British poet and mystic William Blake, 1757-1827. Blake's thought made a direct impact on Neville. Blake believed that our limited perceptions imprison us in a fortress of illusions, but the one true mind, the great creative imagination, or God, can permeate us. If the doors of perception were cleansed, Blake wrote, everything would appear to a man as it is, infinite. In states of higher sensitivity, the visionary poet reasoned, we can feel the effects of this great mind coursing through us. Neville was also influenced, as I noted earlier, by Emile Coué, the self-trained French hypnotherapist. Coué died in 1926, but shortly before his death he lectured on two tours in the United States. Coué was, for a time, hugely popular in the United States and Europe. It was Coué who first spread the idea of using the drowsy, hypnagogic state for mental reconditioning. Another of Kuei's ideas that figured into Neville's thought, you can find the language in Neville's 1945 book, Prayer, the Art of Believing, is that each of us contains two, component, me, two competing forces, will and imagination. The will is our self-determinative and decision-making apparatus. The imagination is the mental pictures that govern us particularly with regard to self-image and emotional judgments we hold about ourselves and others. Kue said that when will and imagination are in conflict, the imagination invariably wins. The emotional state always overcomes the intellect. That is a very useful observation to know. And it makes sense. A lot of the more modern uh, psychological terms that we have, like cognitive dissonance, for example, that's exactly what it is. It completely bypasses intellect. Completely. I should have come out bypasses intellect completely. I'm having a very tired evening. My apologies. So, I think we've gone over that before. There is no decision that you make, and this has been, this has been a, a fascinating, uh, proven. Um, there is no decision that you make that is not based from an emotion of some sort, whether it's disgust, joy, desire. You know, you're hungry, whatever it is, you make every single decision based from emotion, period. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the what the math says, doesn't matter what the arguments were, it's whatever that thing made you feel. 
from voting in presidential elections to figuring out what you want to eat for lunch and you're going to uh, like a Taco Bell or a fast food joint and you're ordering off the menu every single every single decision you don't make any of them without emotion every single decision is made from emotion every single one necessary information for remembering for later so continuing as an example Kuei said place a wooden plank on the floor and ask someone to walk across it he will have no problem but if you raise that same wooden plank 20 feet from the ground the subject will likely be petrified even though there is no difference in the physical act he is capable of crossing the plank the risk of falling is minimal but the changing conditions makes him imagine falling this fosters an emotional state of nervousness which also makes him more accident prone Kuei reasoned that we must cultivate new self-images but we cannot do so through the intellect we must do so by suggesting new ideas to ourselves while in the subtle hypnagogic state he called his method auto-suggestion it was essentially self-hypnosis I find some hint of that in Neville though he far surpassed it so he figured out on his own through observation basically self-hypnosis as we know it in the modern day I always find it fascinating how things came about. You're like, how the hell did you do this the first time? Like, what, what was the thought process behind this? Like, weird questions you have, just random moments, right? Like, who was the first person to pick up an oyster, crack it open, and eat the stuff inside and say, hmm, that tastes yummy. I'm gonna go get some more. Who was the first person that had that thought process? Right? That's fascinating. continuing the purpose of human existence Neville taught is not to recondition your imagination but be reborn from within your imagination you experience your imagination your true self as physically lodged in your skull which functions as a kind of womb Neville in the culmination of his mystical vision believed that you must be reborn from within your skull and that you will have that actual physical experience maybe in the form of a dream but nonetheless a vivid tactile experience of actual rebirth from the base of your skull you will know in that moment that you are fulfilling your central purpose that is oddly descriptive As Mr. Harwitz also says, Neville described this vividly. He had the experience himself in New York City in 1959. He told of the tangibly real dream of being reborn from his skull. 
Minerva was said to be reborn from the skull of Zeus or Jupiter. Christ was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. You and I, Neville said, will be reborn from within our skulls. Later in Neville's career, a speaking agent warned him to stop emphasizing this kind of esoteric material in his talks. He had to return to more familiar themes, like the fortune-building powers of the mind, or he would lose his audience. Then I'll tell it to the bare walls, Neville replied. Although he drew smaller crowds, Neville continued to speak of this mystical rebirth for the rest of his career until his death in Los Angeles in 1972. I have never in my life heard that take before. Although I think I understand what he's saying. Kind of, sort of, what Mr. Dooley was saying when you're waking up in the dream and realize that you've been dreaming. Now all of a sudden you can manipulate what used to be solid matter around you because you understand it's not real. Something similar along those lines, but more waking up to the realization of what it is that you are. Although I've never really heard such emphasis on skulls before. That's fascinating to me. So we're going to stay off or stop there and we're going to come back tomorrow at a little subsection titled Resurrection. We're almost to the end of this book. Oh goodness. Chapter 11. Is there chapter 12? Let's see. Woo! We are almost to the end of this book. Goodness gracious. Okay. I didn't do too much interjecting there today. A lot of it was some, obviously some very well-researched stuff from Mr. Harwitz. <clears throat> Sorry, hiccups for some strange reason. Um, that was some pretty well-researched stuff. So when Mr. Harwitz says that Neville Goddard is one of his like all-time top guys like he's done his research that's some interesting like background knowledge that I didn't had no idea about but again I digress I don't know that much about Neville I haven't really looked into his philosophy too much because it's more centered around specific theology and I try and stay away from that stuff although now I'm really really curious because I've never heard that particular take on the Bible and the New Testament and all of that kind of, um, all that kind of stuff before, and it's fascinating. I can see why um, he is Mr. Horowitz's like premier hero guy that he looks up to. So, you've been told the formula. It's super simple, like super simple, but you gotta do it right. Figure out what you want. Get into the right state. Craft a very simple little video of you already having what it is you want, just like we learned how Mr. Dooley did his. 
you repeat that over in your head while you're in this state until you feel that your intent has been fulfilled and you repeat that as many times as you feel is necessary until your wish is fulfilled. And whether or not you could physically prove one or the other, as we've gone over earlier in the book, there was, you know, been quite, quite the bit of mocking criticism. You still can't explain with any real certainty how these things come about. You can't chalk all of it up to coincidence. You just can't. So, those are some interesting things to think about as you go forth into the rest of your day. And before we hang up, we're going to do our two-minute brain break. So go ahead and do a little wiggle and get in a little stretch. That's exactly what we're going to do. Alrighty. Go ahead and close your eyes. And let's take a nice, slow, deep breath in. Take another nice, slow, deep breath in. And let it back out. And just let your awareness settle into the space. Responsibilities, all the brushing, all the running, just let it all go and my apologies for that hopefully soon I will not be having this problem fingers crossed and prayers and blessings and happy go happy good vibes all around I won't have to worry about it for very much longer so some interesting things to ponder and think about again I hope you're putting these techniques to practice 
and use in your own life. Okay. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you so, so much for your patience. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Have a fantastic rest of your evening. This is the podcast, Asafras. Good night.